following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So of all the works of art that Rembrandt did, one of the major themes that he would constantly draw or paint was around a biblical theme, or he would paint a biblical scenario, something that happened in the Bible. It's one of the most common themes that he would paint or draw, and especially the life of Jesus. And of all the the parts and elements of Jesus' life, there's one kind of small little story It's only in one of the Gospels. It's the story where Jesus, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus into the temple and they interact with this man named Simeon. And it's this one small, often forgotten story that's actually really part of the Christmas story. And it's this forgotten part of the story, but Rembrandt took a special uh, notice of this story and he depicted it many times. And he painted it many times. And so let me show you an example. This, this is a painting that he did of this story from early on um, in his career. And you see here, uh, you see one of the things that Rembrandt does, I'm not no art scholar by any means, but one thing that Rembrandt does is he worked on practice and mastered this idea of lighting. I mean, how do you paint light? And how do you paint a shadow? But he learned how to depict shadows and light and how, that, how a shadow or light might splash on a face or a pillar or a wall. And so you can see he, he liked, it, it liked to use that in this particular scene. And you can see the light is kind of shining in from a window. They're in the temple. You see the two kneeling figures are Mary and Joseph. And you see there's this older man named Simeon and you see he's holding the infant Jesus. And what he's depicting there is the most glowing figure of all the figures in the painting, the one that's most lit up, is Jesus. And that's significant because of something that is in this story. You see, he even has kind of a halo around Jesus' head. Why don't you look at this next one? He did this a few years later, and this is kind of zoomed in. It's a much larger painting, but I want to zoom in on this part. And you can see here, again, it's the temple, but there's all these people crowded around. You see these long, kind of luxurious robes flowing from the characters, and you see uh, Simeon is kind of looking up, and then you see baby Jesus. Now, what's fascinating about this is the light source is actually baby Jesus, And so the light's kind of radiating outward from him, splashing onto Simeon and the faces around them and onto the floor. And this really unbelievable uh, depiction of all these people crowded around crowded around this baby Jesus. And the reason that, maybe one of the reasons he was drawn to this particular story and he painted it what seemed like kind of a disproportionate number of times to, to its, uh, how common it is in Scripture. And it's an often forgotten moment from the, the infant time of Jesus' life. But something in there must have caught his attention because in there, Jesus is talked about as a light to the Gentiles or a light to those who are in darkness. And maybe that's what caught Rembrandt's attention, which is why he depicted it so many times. There's something in the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus that is communicating a very important truth. Those who are out in the darkness, those who are on the outside, are being brought in. 
Now, I don't know how Christmas is finding you this year. You know, Christmas has this funny way of it just rolls around. You can't stop it. You can't make it come faster. It just kind of rolls around. And it's a season where we talk about joy and hope and merriment and peace. And so often that doesn't necessarily match with the season of life we're going, going through right now. And so I don't know how Christmas is finding you this year, but if you're in a place where you feel like, you know what, I, I feel like I'm, I'm in the darkness needing to be brought into the light, or I feel like I'm an outsider, then you need to hear this story because this is a profound part of the original Christmas story. In this series, we've been looking at the songs, the original songs of Christmas. We looked at Mary's song. We looked at a guy named Zechariah's song. And now we're gonna, today, we're going to look at Simeon's song. And it's got a profound truth in it that we need to hear today. Open with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. Luke 2, verse 22. Here's how the story goes. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, it's talking about Mary and Joseph, they brought him, that's baby Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, let's get the context here for the story. Where is this taking place in the Christmas story? There is a law that says, and it's referred to here, that every time a son is the firstborn, that child is considered holy, and the parents take this child back to Jerusalem, and there's to present a sacrifice. Now, this is supposed to happen on the, on the 40th day after the child is born. So where is this in the story? Most of what we know of the Christmas story of, of angels showing up and shepherds and the stable and the manger, this is about a, less than a month and a half later. This is the 40th day of Jesus' life. He's about a month and a half. They're returning back to Jerusalem with baby Jesus, and they're going to offer a sacrifice according to the law to present him to the Lord. Now, what the law actually says is that they're to present a lamb. But what it quotes here from the law is this, there's a contingency in the law that if the couple cannot afford to purchase a lamb, they can purchase two young pigeons or two turtle doves. And so by the fact that it's quoting that contingency, it's sharing something for us about Mary and Joseph and their economic status. They're coming back to Jerusalem, and they've got baby Jesus, and they've got, I imagine, maybe Mary's holding baby Jesus. Joseph has maybe a little cage, and he's just purchased somewhere in the temple complex or just outside these two young pigeons. Now, we learn a couple things about the family Jesus was born into. First, Mary and Joseph, they're a godly couple. They're trying to obey the law of God. They're, they're, they want to follow the ancient law that set from God through Moses thousands of year, years earlier. So they're showing up when they're supposed to, and they're, they're godly people being reverent to the Lord. But we learn something else about Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are, are not people of means. 
You know, it's, it's commonly known that Joseph was a carpenter or a craftsman of some kind. But what does that mean? Did he own a company? Did he do pretty well? This gives us a, an insight into that. No, he didn't. They were lower income, if not impoverished people. All they could afford was these two pigeons. So they're coming in. Now imagine this couple coming in. They're from a rural Galilee, a tiny little a village called Nazareth might not even be on the map. They're in this, the bustling urban center of Jerusalem uh, where they have, there's a Roman governor present and they're in this busy, massive temple complex with their two pigeons and their infant. Now there's some, someone else in this story and we're going to need to pause on Mary and Joseph and learn about this other character that's going to appear in the story. Look what it says, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, I love the way this story unfolds. It says, okay, Mary and Joseph, Jesus, two pigeons, they're on the temple complex. Pause for a second. You got to know about this other guy. There's another guy in Jerusalem, Simeon. We learn through this story he's later in life, towards the end of his life. And there's something special about this guy. This guy is a godly, devout man. And somehow, we don't exactly know how. We don't know if it was a vision, an angel, a dream. Somehow God communicated to him that he will not die until he sees the consolation of Israel. Now what does consolation of Israel mean? Consolation literally means like to console, to bring comfort to Israel. Is literally what it means, okay? Now, if you know, um, if you can think of the time that Simeon lived, the time of Jesus, this is a season when Israel, for generations, have been under the thumb of another empire, in this case, the Roman Empire. When Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, they walk through Jerusalem, they see there's Roman governors, there's Roman officials, Roman soldiers, Roman tax collectors. They are not a free people. They've been waiting for generations for God to bring help. And so what it says is he's been waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. Okay, it's kind of like this. What does he mean exactly by comfort? Okay, if you in your life have a friend who is a Patriots fan, this week, poor Patriots fans in our lives they needed to be comforted, didn't they? Yes, amen, I heard someone say. Exactly. They needed to be comforted, those poor Patriots fans. Okay, that's one sense of comfort. But on the other sense, we Dolphin fans, we were also comforted because clearly the tide has turned in the history of the Miami Dolphins the power of the AFC East has shifted and we are going to win the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> right? That's right. Okay, thank you. So we also find great comfort in what happened this past weekend. Okay, it's in this secondary sense that he's waiting 
for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for finally the moment when Israel is placed back in their rightful place of prominence. When finally the oppression has ceased, the tyranny has ended, finally has been placed back in there. And God has provided a, a situation where they're brought out of this dark season. He's waiting for that comfort, that moment of comfort. But he says specifically, he knows a little bit more. He says specifically, God has somehow communicated to him that he will not die until he's seen the Lord's Christ. Now, you, we all hear the, the, the term Jesus Christ. Obviously, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. And it comes from the Greek term Christos, which simply means Messiah. So when you hear Jesus Christ, it's Jesus with the title Messiah. And he's waiting for the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. So he knows he won't just see the comfort, the restoration of Israel. He will see the person that will be the Messiah. All right, now do you see the tension building in this passage? It's so good, okay? You're watching this movie. You know all that's been happening over the last couple months with Mary and then Joseph and there's been angels and Gabriel and shepherds and a stable, okay? All these crazy things have been happening, but yet there, this, this couple, I, I picture them walking into this urban center of Jerusalem, this, this busy temple complex kind of pushed around in, in there walking in with their little pigeons, and they're walking in, and then you see someone moving towards the temple from Jerusalem. And this guy has been waiting to see the Christ. And you see these two are on a collision path. Incredible how this story plays out. Look what happens next, verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 27. Look at this. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. This is Simeon. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. All right, in just a second, we're going to look at his words, his, what's called Simeon's song. But I, I don't want to just skip this moment. He's been waiting all his life to see the Christ. Can you imagine this moment? If you lived at the time of Simeon, you've lived through revolts in Israel, rebellions that have tried to overthrow Rome. You, you've been there seeing, when you've heard that there's a group of people from Israel, a group of, of Israelis that have raised up to overthrow Rome, and you're wondering, is God going to empower them like he has earlier in their history? What's going to happen? And you've lived through those revolts as they've been violently suppressed. And you're Simeon, and you're wondering, God, did I hear you right? Am I going to see the Christ? And you hear about this rebel leader, and you're like, maybe it's him. Maybe he's the Messiah that's going to deliver our people finally. And then maybe you, you hear if it's not him, maybe there's a, a prince is born in Jerusalem. And you're like, maybe, it's, maybe that prince is going to be the king that leads his people. Or, or you hear about this, this rabbi that's teaching very boldly. Maybe he's the Messiah. You're wondering when that moment, and one day, for, and somehow, we don't know how, he gets impressed that he's supposed to go to that temple that day. And he walks into the temple, and he's looking, waiting, and building. Is this the moment that my entire life has been angling towards? And then he sees 
a poor couple with a little baby. And I, I just wonder what surged through him at that moment. Did all the hairs on his neck just stand up? Did his heart just start pounding? Was it like this moment where it felt almost out of body, like all of the other hustle and bustle in the temple just dissipated as his eyes fixed on this couple? I mean, what did he say when he walks up to them and he, he can't even get the words out? Just somehow what we know is he ends up with Jesus in his hands. Did Mary and Joseph just see this man speechless and they've seen so many crazy things in the last couple months that they know something's happening and they, they take this child and they hand it to him and he's holding in his hands Jesus, the baby, the Christ, and he's finally holding the, him in his hands what all his life he's been waiting for. Can you imagine holding the Christ as a baby in your arms? See, we've been talking about these songs. And if you remember, each one of them come out of a profound season of reflection. Mary finds out that she's going to conceive a child, even though she's a virgin, and she rushes to see Elizabeth. So for those days or weeks, she must have felt so alone. Well, how is she supposed to tell anyone this story? But then the first time she sees Elizabeth, what comes flooding out of her mouth is one of the most incredible, beautiful statements about Jesus and about what God is doing, and it's known as Mary's song. It's so profound and poetic but it comes out of those days and weeks of just trying to grasp what's happening. The priest, Zechariah, finds out that even though he and his wife have never been able to have children and they're way advanced in life, he finds out that Elizabeth is going to have a child and that this child will be the prophet that leads the way before the Messiah will come. And he's so shocked, he's struggling to grasp it and can barely believe it, and the angel tells him he won't be able to speak until the child is born. So for months, he's in silence, and what is he reflecting on in that season, trying to grasp all, that ha all that's happened, and then his son is born, who will become John the Baptist, and then the first words that we have recorded just comes tumbling out of his mouth is this spirit-inspired, poetic, glorious, scripture-drenched statement about what God's doing, and it's so profound out of those months of reflection, so spirit-driven, that it's known as Zechariah's song. But that's not what Simeon's case is. It's not days or weeks. It's not months. It's his entire life has been building towards this moment. And he's holding the Christ child. And this is what he says. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared. Look at this. You have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the, what does that say? To the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The way this whole story is building, that takes such an unexpected, dramatic right-hand turn. It completely catches you off guard if you're tracking the logic of this passage. First of all, I want you to see his very first words. In the original Greek, his, uh, his first words are, now dismiss, as in now dismiss your servant from this life. In the ancient Latin, it is, Nunc dimitis. And so this whole song 
the song of Simeon has through the generations of Christianity been known as Nunc Dimittis, just like the very first word in Mary's song is magnify, so it's been known as the Magnificat. And the first words in Zechariah's song is blessed be God, blessed Benedictus is how the song has been known, and this is known as Nunc Dimittis. And here's what Simeon is saying, now I, you can dismiss me from life. I can die in peace. The purpose of my life has been fulfilled, for I have seen your salvation. Can you, can you grasp how tremendous that statement is? He's only seen a baby. He's not seen a war hero yet. War hero yet. He's not seen this a tremendous uh, teacher that transforms the minds of, of men and women. He's not seen someone who works miracles and raises the dead. He's only seen a child, and that's all he needed to see. The salvation of the Lord is here. And then he says, this is the man who's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for his people, for Israel, God's people, to finally be restored. He's been waiting for, for Israel to be called out by, by her God. He's been waiting for Israel. But what does he say? Does he say, now I see your salvation in the presence of all of Israel? Does he see a light of revelation to all of Israel? This is, you're waiting to see, how is Israel going to be restored? But when he finally has the child in his hands, something hits him. God gives him this insight that this is so much bigger than just Israel. This is the Christ, the Messiah for all peoples. This is the light to the Gentiles those who are in darkness, those who are outsiders, this is the light to all people. It's not just the consolation of Israel. It's the consolation the whole earth needs is in this baby, the salvation of the Lord. It's for all people. Now, now think about the gravity of this actual moment. Okay, Simeon is standing in the temple complex with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. Okay, that, that's like the, the epicenter of the Jewish faith at this time. It's the epicenter of how God's people interact and the intimacy of their relationship with God. Okay, I want to just walk through this with you. I'm going to have to go Bible nerd on you here for a second, okay? In Jerusalem, there's this beautiful model of what ancient Jerusalem looked like in the time of Jesus. And they have this incredible model of the Temple Mount itself. Here's a picture of it, okay? It's this beautiful model, and this would be from the perspective of the Mount of Olives. There would be the Kidron Valley right in front of the temple there, and then that's the Eastern Gate. And then you can see the building in the middle is the actual temple, and the rest is the whole temple complex. And you see there's this colonnade that goes all the way around. That's where scribes and Pharisees and priests would teach. The, the colonnade that you can't see, this one that's right here, is called Solomon's Porch. That's where the early church would meet and they would talk about Jesus, okay? And I want to show you one detail that it's really kind of hard to see, okay? You've got the, the arrow there. You see that line that it's pointing to. Can you see that? It goes all around the temple building itself. Now, if, you were, if it was life-size, it's a barrier that stands about this high probably, they think. And it's talked about by ancient historians. 
that's the boundary line that Gentiles are not allowed to go any further. And ancient historians said that there's a sign posted there. And the sign was a warning that essentially said, if you go any further, you're taking your life into your hands. In other words, God may strike you dead. In fact, uh, archaeologists have actually found some of these signs. Here's one of the signs that they found. It's in a museum. It's written in that warning is written in both Greek and in Latin. It's a warning. Outsiders, foreigners, Gentiles are not welcome past this point. It's in the temple that Simeon is standing there. I mean, the perfect place if you're waiting for the consolation of Israel, right? And he's standing there holding the Christ child, and it's there in the temple where he realizes this Messiah, this Christ, this salvation is not just for Israel. It's for all peoples, a light to the Gentiles. That boundary is coming down. The outsiders are welcomed in. See, here's how, what this baby would grow up to do. Do you realize this is, this is the M.O. of Jesus? He's drawn to the outsider. He can't help himself. He's constantly drawn to those who are outsiders. He's drawn to the outcasts. Do you remember the story of Jesus? He was traveling to Jerusalem when most pious people would walk all the way around the territory called Samaria. He leads his disciples right through it. And he stops there and he's by himself at this well and a woman comes up to the well by herself. The fact that she's by herself is an indicator because women would not travel to the well by themselves, they'd go together. So if she's by herself, she's an outcast among her own people. And we learn in the story why, because she's, she's living loosely and she's got a notorious reputation. And she's at the well all by herself, and he says, he starts talking with her, and she's shocked. She's like, why are you talking to me? You're a Jewish man, and I'm a Samaritan woman. And by the, by the customs of those days, she's shocked that a man is talking to her, a woman, and that a, a Jewish man is talking to her, a Samaritan. Because by, by the culture of that day, she's the wrong gender, she's the wrong race, she's the wrong religion, and Jesus can't help himself. He has to talk to her. And he stops and, he's, and he says, I know what you've done. I know how you live. And he says, and I'm here to offer you something living water so you will never thirst again and keep going back to those wells that you're going to in your life that can never fill you. He can't help himself going to the outsider. How about Zacchaeus? He doesn't just go to the outcast, the Samaritan woman. He goes to Zacchaeus. This is a man of deep brokenness. He's a, he's a man of Israel. He's a, he's a Hebrew. He's an Israeli. But what has he done? He's become a tax collector for Rome. He's a traitor to his people. And on top of that, he has cheated all of the people he's collected taxes from. And they know it. And there's nothing they can do about it. But he hears about Jesus and he can't help himself. He climbs up into a tree. And he's looking down, and of all the crowds that are following Jesus that day in Jericho, Jesus stops and said, it's you, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I want to go to your, I want to, let's throw a party at your house. And Zacchaeus must have been, must have almost fell out of the tree when he said that. 
welcomes him back to his house, and that man finds salvation that day because of Jesus, and he gives back many times over to all that he cheated. He turns his life completely around, because even though there's a man who's broken, made all these poor decisions in his life, Jesus can't help himself. But there's another person, the forgotten. One day Jesus shows up into Capernaum, practically his hometown while he was during his ministry. And he arrives and there's the ruler of the synagogue. I mean, this guy is the guy in town. And his daughter is sick. And they say, Jesus, we got to go. And the whole crowd is like, well, he's got to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. And so they all crowd around him and they're all going to see him heal the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. But there's one that's forgotten. And she's been suffering for 12 years. This woman who has this issue of blood for 12 years. She's bleeding and it won't stop. And here's what that means. She can have no human contact with anyone, including her family, or she'll defile them ceremonially. She can't even go to synagogue because she's considered unclean. But she hears Jesus. No one remembers her. She's looked over and forgotten. Everyone's following him to Jairus' daughter, but she can't help it. She says, maybe Jesus can heal me, but she knows she can't dare stop him in the middle of all these people because she's looked over and forgotten. So she gets down on her hands and knees and she pushes her way through the crowd because she just needs to reach out. And maybe she says, if I touch the hem of his garment, maybe I'll be healed. And she touches the hem of his garment. And for 12 years, the first time she's healed. And as she tries to back away slowly, Jesus says, everybody stop. Who was that who touched me? And he drew her out into the middle and he says, My daughter, you've been made whole because of your faith. He can't help it. He's drawn to the outcast, he's drawn to the broken, and he's drawn to the forgotten. But you know what this passage says? It takes it a step further. Of all the ways that God himself, as he looked down through all all eternity through history, said, how am I going to enter into my creation? What is that going to look like? How am I going to do that? He could have come as a king, a pharaoh, a prince, an elite religious figure, a war hero, but he comes as a baby to a poor family that can't even afford a lamb for the sacrifice. Does that tell you something about the heart of God? He enters in as the forgotten. Jesus becomes the broken. And he becomes the outcast because he loves the outsider so much. I want to show you the last painting that Rembrandt ever did. After he died, they went into his studio and they found this painting on an easel. And it's another, yet another painting of Simeon holding baby Jesus, but it's so different from his earlier paintings. There's no luxurious robes, there's no crowd, there's no Uh, honorable, venerable-looking older man. It's just an old man. There's no light just emanating off of the Christ child. It's just an old man with a nondescript baby in his hands. See, that was the moment. That's the point. 
this Jesus coming from the outsider, coming for the outcast, coming for the broken and the forgotten, that's actually how he came to. I don't know how Christmas is finding you this year. But we can't help it at Christmas time but look backwards over the previous year, right? And maybe the previous season of life. And maybe you say, look, honestly, if, I, if I'm honest with you, I, I feel like a little bit of an outsider this year. In the dark. Maybe you say, look, I, I'm like the outcast. I, I feel like I've, I've been pushed out. I'm the wrong race, the wrong gender, the, the wrong age. I have the wrong background, the wrong economic status, the wrong social status. I, maybe I feel pushed out because I don't have the experience, I don't have the education, I don't have the look. I've been told that I'm not good enough, I'm not successful enough, I'm not beautiful enough. This is a year I've just felt rejected. I've had a, a relationship break, break up and I feel rejected. Or I've got a friend reject me or I'm going to be around family that I, I don't even feel like an insider in my own family. And you say, today I'm the outsider. Can you see that Jesus, he came for the outcast. He, he can't help himself. He loves you. And he says, I'm bringing the outcast into me. You are not outcast. Maybe say, today, today in this season, I feel like I'm, I'm the broken. You don't understand the decisions that I've made in my life. I still bear the scars physically, emotionally, for the decisions that I've made or maybe I, you say, I feel broken and it's not even the decisions I regret. I just feel broken because the circumstances pressing in on my life I, I've just broken me. And I look at all the people, who, their lives seem like they're going great and mine's broken. And so then I feel like I can't relate, like I'm the outcast. I'm the outsider because I'm broken. But maybe in this season you're saying, look, I, I feel, I just feel forgotten. It's not that someone's pushing me out. I just feel overlooked. I'm not good enough to get attention, not good enough to be pursued, not good enough to be treasured and honored. I just feel overlooked and forgotten in this season. And who is looking after me? Who's coming after me? Who's pursuing me? And can you just hear today, Jesus, he came for you. He can't help himself. He came for the outsider. He came as an outsider. Do you know the trajectory of Jesus' ministry? He was at the right hand of God the Father in the glory of heaven, the, the highest possible position. But he looked down on earth and he says, I cannot help myself. He comes down to earth into a lowly poor family. He's rejected by humankind. He's humiliated and he's crucified. But they didn't just crucify him. They intentionally took him outside the city to make a point. You are not welcome here. You're an outsider. And they crucified him on the cross. And he died, but he rose again from the dead. And he was set back down on the right hand of God the Father, and he brought all of us outsiders with him. He became the outsider because he said, you, I've got to welcome you in. I've got to let the, the walls and the barriers come down. And I've got to reach into those who are in darkness and pull them into light. You say, look, I, I hear that in my head, but I can't get that down into my heart. Help me. Here's your one practical assignment in this last week of Christmas. You're charged to go find an outsider and welcome them in. 
Rebecca's family, the Ferguson family, one of our traditions is on Christmas Eve, they go into uh, Washington, D.C. They live outside of Washington, D.C. They go in and they, they have a, a Christmas celebration uh, in, as a family inside the city. But they always take with them these packages because of the, the homeless population is significant in Washington, D.C. And it's a very difficult time for homeless people to survive in the cold. And they bring these packages that have things for them, food and things to keep them warm. And they make a point of we're going in, but we're going to bless these who are considered by our society so often as outsiders. Find a way to do that. Maybe this week, as busy as it is, you say, no, we're going to create some space and you take your family to a retirement center to those who are so often forgotten and you just sit there and you listen. And here's some incredible stories. Maybe you say, you know what, no, I'm going to give a phone call to that person who's forgotten or write them a letter or a note. Or maybe you say, you know what, there's someone who has no family, so I'm going to bring them to, the, to Noche Buena this year because I want them to have a family to celebrate with. Or, or maybe you stop and you say, who can I invite with me to come to church next weekend who feels like they wouldn't be welcome? Do you know the power of saying, we would love for you to come to church? Do you know there's some people that the reason they don't come is because they feel like they're not welcome? And what could be farther from the truth as you write them a postcard or you, you hand them an invite and say, I would love for you to come with me. This year, as you are trying to get from our head to our heart that he has welcomed us in, one of the things that will thaw your heart the quickest is being an agent of God to welcome the outsider in. But there's some of you who are here listening to this, you're watching online, and and you feel like an outsider, and I want you to know you can be welcomed in right now. Do you feel a thousand miles away from God? He came, this presence of this baby came so that you could be welcomed in. No matter what, Jesus can't help himself. Can we just take a quiet moment before God? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a second? You might be here and say, look, I want to know that I I have a relationship with God. I want to know that I'm restored. I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that Jesus is for me. I want to put the pieces back together, but you don't understand what's happened in my life, what I've done. I feel so far from God. But today, you know, you can, you can realize that Jesus came for exactly people like you because that's all of our stories. And so today, you can just simply say, there's an, accept an invitation to you. There's an invitation to the feast, to the party, from Jesus to you, welcoming you in, saying, I paid the price so you could spend eternity in heaven because God loves you. Can you just receive that invitation today? If you want to find salvation today from the Messiah, I want to lead you just in a simple prayer. Right here, right now, you can find salvation for eternity. Just right there in your seat, in your heart, say these words to God. Just make this prayer your prayer silently right where you're at. Just simply say, thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you, God, even though I am an outsider. You've brought me in. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross to save me. I believe you rose again from the dead. 
so I can live for eternity in heaven. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.